0: Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus. We are in Exodus and we are in chapter 18 of Exodus. And in a moment, we're going to read all 27 verses together, or I will read it and you will hear and listen. Uh, this is the most important part of this morning. The most perfect part of this morning is the reading of God's Word. And it is the part that is And so let us pay close attention to this relatively long chapter as we read it. So please stand with me, if you are willing and able, for the reading of God's Word. Follow along and concentrate here now as we hear from God's Word. Exodus 18, verses 1 through 27. Jethro... The priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare went into a tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring the cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of Israel, out of all Israel, and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Many of you, I trust, have heard of the name John Piper. He's a pastor and author, uh, and he's known for many things. And the mention of his name will prompt some of you to maybe think about his rigorous biblical defense of the sovereignty of God. Others will point to his kind of passionate, very handsy, expository preaching. Or his commitment to the pro-life movement. And some of you will think of him as the pastor that doesn't own a television television. Yet yeah, perhaps what Piper is best known for is his articulation of God's heart for his own glory, that God is preeminently committed to the fame of his name, and he, and he is the only being in the universe qualified to do so. God is perfectly good and just, gracious and loving. It is not selfish for God to do things for his own name's sake, because God is our greatest good. But really, John Piper is a rip-off artist. I think he would agree with me there. Because God's desire to make his name known is not Piperian theology. It is biblical theology. The whole of the Bible is concerned with God making himself known. And we've said this before, that this is the core message of the book of Exodus. Exodus. The central theme in the book of Exodus is God making his own name known. Often when we think of Exodus, what do we think of? We think plagues. We think Red Sea. We think Pharaoh. We think freedom from slavery. But really there is a missionary heart to the book of Exodus. That God would make himself known. To Israel, he says to them in Exodus 6-7, I will take you to be my people... And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Then he says this to Pharaoh in Exodus 9. For this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Psalm 106, which recounts the history of Exodus, says, Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. The prophet Isaiah comments on the Exodus saying, so you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. God's agenda in Exodus is to publish his own glory. We've seen this theme kind of play itself out throughout Exodus. God has made himself known through the ten plagues. He's made himself known through the provision of the Passover. He's made himself known in the deliverance at the Red Sea. And he's even made his, himself known while Israel is in the wilderness, on their way to Mount Sinai. At the bitter waters of Marah, he's made himself known. The daily need for manna, Massa meribah, where water came from the rock. Even last week, as we saw from this battle with the Amalekites, God is saying, I am your banner. Look to me. Now we arrive at chapter 18, and I would argue it's more of the same. When we come here with Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, it functions, I would even argue, as a theological centerpiece for the book of Exodus. Once again, it's concerned with God making his name known. Now, at first glance at chapter 18, you might think it's a little bit out of place. Like, what's it really doing here? Uh, It doesn't have a whole lot to do with Israel. Uh, Israel's not even in the wilderness anymore. It says they're at the mountain of God. So they've arrived at where they need to be. And yet they're not doing anything with God. They're not receiving the law on the mountain. It feels a little bit like one of those filler episodes in a drama series that you feel like you just want to skip over and get to the, it doesn't really advance the plot. And it's really two stories that we see here, don't we? One about this kind of family reunion, verses 1 through 12, and in verses 13 through 27, it's kind of about Israel organizing itself. It's administrative. So why are these two stories important? What are they doing here in Exodus? What is this meant to convey to the original hearers of Exodus, which is the second generation of Israel in the wilderness? Well, I believe that this chapter is bringing to focus the theme of God making himself known. So let's let's take a look at this passage this morning, and we're going to see two exhortations from our passage, or maybe I'll have two exhortations for you from this passage. And the first is make God known by proclaiming his word. Make God known by proclaiming his word. Look at this family reunion of sorts with Moses and Jethro. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 18, we're really being caught up with what's happened so far. Kind of the backstory of Moses' family so that it can get into what's happening here in these first 12 verses. This is kind of, in these early verses, kind of like the next episode, you know, uh, uh, you know um, and it's kind of on your favorite TV show where it says, previously on Exodus. You know, this is kind of these first couple verses. We're being caught up with what has already happened. Moses' family hasn't been met- mentioned since chapter four, uh, where after spending 40 years in the Midianite desert with Jethro, he respectfully asks Jethro, can I go to Egypt Because I'm being called from the burning bush to go and deliver my people. And he takes along with him, initially, Zipporah, his wife, and his children. But at some point, and we don't know the details, Moses apparently sends Zipporah and his children back to Midian. Uh, Doubtless, Moses had sent them away to protect his family. Perhaps he sent them when he was just about to cross into the border of Egypt maybe sent them when things really started to heat up during the plagues. But Gershom and Eliezer returned home to be with Grandpa Jethro in Midian. Now it's over a month that's passed since Israel has finally left Egypt. And news about Israel's departure has certainly spread, whether through various caravans or messengers. Jethro likely hears that God has rescued Israel through the oral news network that kind of flows around there and finally brings Zipporah and the children to be reunited with Moses and it feels so good. Notice that in verses 3 and 4, the attention given to the meaning of the names uh, of Moses' sons, Gershom and Eliezer. Gershom means sojourner. Eliezer means my God is my help. My God is my help. This is what God has done in the life story of Moses. Their names are kind of a testimony to the dealings of Moses. Uh, in his personal... He, remember that he names his sons while he's still out in Midian. So this is, this is about his personal escape from Egypt uh, as a fugitive. He had been in, he's in exile. He's a stranger in Midian. Yet God had delivered him and saved him from the sword of Pharaoh. And when Moses returns to Egypt to deliver Israel he actually has the same thing. He becomes a sojourner when he enters into Israel and is again delivered from Pharaoh. And this would continue to be Moses' identity going forward, a sojourner who receives his help from God. Well, word reaches Moses, likely from the edge of the encampment that Jethro has arrived, so Moses rushes out to meet him. Verse 6 and 7, Moses greets Jethro and respectfully bows and kisses and inquires after his his welfare. But soon they go into the tent, don't they? Just to talk story a little bit. And notice what Moses does in verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in a way and how the Lord had delivered them. This was a God-centered testimony. Testimony. Uh, This wasn't what God means to me kind of story. It was very God-centered. It was all about God. And if you look at verse 8, the word told, look at that word, is a bit of an understatement. Because that word told can mean count or recount. It can mean proclaim or declare. Turn back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9, and you'll see why this is important. Look at verse 14, Exodus 9, 14. This is Moses speaking to Pharaoh. And he says, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And then in verse 16, For, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, that word proclaimed there is the exact Hebrew word as told, the word that is used to describe Moses telling his father Jethro. Now, skip down to chapter 10, verse 2. It says, and that, and now he's speaking to Israel now. Or, or um, the Lord is speaking to Moses now. And says, and that you may tell, same word again, in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know I am the Lord. So if you go back to Exodus 18, what's happening there is that Moses isn't mumbling. He's evangelizing. Consciously he's trying to seek to convert his father-in-law, who we see in verse 1 is a priest of Midian. He's not a follower of Yahweh. He's not a follower of God. To put it another way, he is making God known. Telling, recounting, proclaiming. He's heralding to Jethro the saving work of God, overcoming enemies, bringing them deliverance and redemption. But he doesn't stop there. He tells them about the cost of following the Lord. He speaks about the hardships that have come upon them. God's provision and how God is worthy to be trusted. And how does Jethro respond? People are always questioning, is Jethro being saved here? He most certainly is. How does he respond? He says, he rejoiced, in verse 9, for all the good that the Lord had done. Jethro, Jethro is not just saying, cool story, bro. That's not what's happening here. That word rejoiced is a rare word. It means it could be translated tremble, actually, and shudder. The Jewish Midrash renders renders this verse, he felt cuts in his body cuts in his body. So there's more than just joy here. There's a depth of conviction. Something has penetrated his heart to the core of who he is. It's like in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches and people are saying they're cut to the heart and that's what's happening to Jethro. It's a conviction of sin mingled with joy. Verse 10, Jethro says, blessed be the Lord. He uses the covenant name of Yahweh. Covenant name of God. And verse 11, he confesses, Now what? I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Now this statement will be echoed again by another Gentile. In Second Kings 5.15, the Aramean Naaman. He says, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. This is, again, this knowing is, again, echoed by Rahab when she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. In other words, Jethro is not saying, way to go. Your God has helped you. He's not saying, well, there are a lot of gods out there and your God seems to be pretty strong. No, this is a display of true confession, true conversion. This is made clear because Jethro offers a sacrifice in verse 12. Before God, in the presence of God. And he sits down in a covenant meal with all the leaders. You cannot offer a sacrifice before God and not be consumed by God. Unless you are a follower of his. Jethro rejoiced, he confessed, he worshipped. I wonder if you can see what's going on in this story. It's not a story about, some people will apply it like this. When you meet people of a different tribe, be humble, uh, be respectful, treat others who aren't your tribe with honor and deference to make a way for the gospel. That's certainly a good point of application, but I think that would be missing something. It's not even about bearing witness. As much as it is about God's plan of redemption in making himself known coming to pass, isn't it? Do you see the connection? In chapter 17, earlier, there's these Amalekites, people outside of the covenant of Israel. They did not follow Jesus. They, they did not follow Yahweh. Now in Exodus 18, we see a non-Israelite come again, not to be slaughtered, but with great sympathy. Pharaoh doesn't respond to Moses. The Amalekites don't respond to Moses, but this priest of Midian, he does. A Midianite. These are the same people that took Joseph captive and brought brought him into slavery. And now this Midianite priest becomes a true worshiper of God. Mission accomplished, right? And by the way, Jethro would be an evangelist He would go and tell others about the Lord. We know this because later in Numbers 10.29, Jethro and his clan are actually invited along with Israel to go into the promised land. They are part of the people of God. And Judges 1.16 says, The the, the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah into Canaan. Here then in chapter 18 is the fulfillment of the Lord's primary goal that other nations would come to know his supremacy. Author Ross Blackburn writes, Jethro stands as an instance that the Lord's missionary purposes are being realized. And while some will reject, some will rejoice. While some will be conquered, some will be converted. Now, some of you here this morning, and you're here and you're not a Christian. Uh, Maybe a friend brought you and Christianity seems like something that you want to explore and try to understand and get to know a little bit better. And let me just say that as a church, we're glad that you are here. But I must warn you that as a church, we will talk to you about the gospel. The central message of Christianity, we're going to say things like, You're a sinner. We're going to say things like humanity has fallen short of the glory of God. And everyone deserves judgment under the wrath of God. And we don't say this because we're just dour people. But for your delight. We say this for your delight. Because we want to make known to you that salvation is available in no other name than Jesus Christ. You see, you were meant to be in a relationship with God. You were created to have fellowship with Him for your joy, and for God's glory. But sin's ruined that. Sin has separated you, separated all of us from God, and the penalty of that is an eternal wrath under the judgment of God. But God, in his great love, and the greatest redemptive work in all of history, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross, to bear the sins of all those who repent and trust in him, and thereby placating the, his wrath and the judgment you deserve. Could today, friend, be the time of rejoicing for you? Because salvation is yours today and forever if you would but turn and trust in Jesus Christ. It won't be an easy road as a Christian. In fact, life may get harder, but it will be worth it. And Christian, beloved, I'm not going to stand up here this morning, and berate you about your evangelism. We you probably all feel guilty enough as it is. But I will ask you a question. I will ask, when was the last time you made God, God's name known? When did you, like Moses, just with humility and gentleness, explain to others what God has done for your soul in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because we must tell people, we must tell people. We must tell them about the cost. We must tell them that Jesus is enough and his grace is sufficient. And remember that your evangelism is not a failure if, people, if, someone doesn't, if someone hears the gospel and rejects it. It would be sad. Our hearts should break when someone says no thank you, but the purpose of our evangelism is not merely to convince, though that is our hope and that is our prayer. But when God's word goes forth, it accomplishes its purposes whether that is to save or whether that is to condemn. Through it all, God makes his name known. Second, make God known by keeping his word. We've seen so far that we ought to make God known by proclaiming his word. Second, we see in verses 13 through 27, make God known by keeping his word. Verses 13 and 14, we kind of get a window into the life of the community at this point in its development. Uh, Moses is sort of like the Supreme Court of Israel, isn't he? Uh, He has the authority to help settle a lot of disputes. The problem is that the court of Moses feels a little bit like the DMV. Uh, The lines are long. uh, The worker is unhappy. And the people in line are unhappy. And it really has become an all-consuming ministry for Moses. From morning till evening, all day long, day after day, here he is adjudicating all these different things for nearly two and a half million people. I mean, think of the disputes. I mean, you know, hey, you, you ate some of my family's manna. You know, or hey, you know, you... Your son over there, you know, I think he was getting a little bit handsy with my daughter. You stole one of my cows. You put too heavy a load on my wagon and made the wheels collapse. Hey, you took more water from that rock than I did. Or than you're supposed to. And Jethro is just kind of off to the side in the corner, just quietly observing it all, like a good father-in-law. And he says, what is this that you're doing for the people? And Moses says this. Look at what his response is. Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me. And my, my, the, what I'm trying to do, my purpose is to make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And Jethro, being like a lot of father-in-laws, is very blunt. He says, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you certainly will wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Listen to me, right? I mean, he's a good father-in-law. And he does provide some good sage advice. He says, look for men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. Let them divide up the work. Make them leaders over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have a judicial system, kind of like our court system, where we have uh, district courts and appellate courts and a supreme court. The serious matters you're still going to deal with. And in this way, you'll endure. Now, again, when we look at these verses, it would be very easy to look at this passage and apply it in a variety of ways. Uh, One could say we should be humble enough to listen to the wisdom of others, Um, that God provides wisdom even from a new convert, that God provides wisdom even from a father in law. That would be a fine application. I mean, after all, Moses could have gone back and said, Zipporah, your dad is killing me. And you've got to talk to him. He's driving me crazy. He's always telling me what to do with Gershom and Eliezer. And now he's telling me what to do with Israel. But Moses doesn't do that. He does listen. Certainly an application. But definitely seems to miss some points. Again, others would say it's a lesson about governance. Like, the way that churches should be governed. Presbyterians love this passage because they point to this passage and say, you see, this is how we're supposed to govern. You have people elected or represented. They have elected representatives, right? And you have representative rule, and those elders form a group in the local church. And if there's any problems that arise from the local church, it goes up to the presbytery. And then if if there's any problems there, it goes to the general assembly. And then they say, look... Presbyterianism is in the Bible. And I think in my estimation, that is certainly an erroneous application. Still others make this passage about leadership. It shows that no one's indispensable. Moses, it's not all about you. The whole enterprise doesn't depend on you. And maybe we would say that in a church to have just one head pastor uh, seems very foolish. You're going to wear him out. So the church is to be raising up a plurality of, uh, of elders, or maybe every institution should have a plurality of leaders. Leaders not based on wealth, but from all the people, from all ranks, filled with skill and virtue. And we should have leaders that fear God. That's certainly another application. But again, I think this would miss the point of what is the first generation is meant to understand here. I'm sorry, the second generation in the wilderness. Though the whole tone of it sounds administrative, the idea here is to ensure what? That the word of God is going down to every level. That the word of God makes it right down to the smallest group. Isn't that what's going on here? It's so that daily life could be ordered around the word of God. Look again at the passage. What is Moses doing in verse 16? I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Jethro affirms this in verse 20. That's what you're to do. You shall warn them about statutes and laws. Make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. This is what Moses' job was. And that's what all the lower courts were to do. In other words, this is a practical measure that enables Israel to know and be governed under the law of the Lord. We have to remember where we are in Exodus. There are already some statutes and laws. Passover, other things that have been shared. And for the time being, Moses is God's prophet. He declares the statutes and the commandments. That's fine for now, but in chapter 19 and beyond, there's going to be more legal material that's going to come from Mount Sinai. They're about to receive the law of God. So this passage actually functions to anticipate What is to come in the next chapters? One commentator writes, this chapter makes clear two ways of knowing Yahweh that are complementary. The knowledge of Yahweh available in and through the event of the Exodus itself and its recitation, and two, the knowledge of Yahweh found in the way of Yahweh, his Torah, or law. In other words, these... Chapter 18 looks back at what has happened, and also looks forward about what is to happen. And it looks forward in a way because God is going to make himself known by the active participation of his people living out his laws. God has already made himself known by the works of his hands. Now God will make himself known by the works of his people. Again, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder what you think about the Christians that you do know, the Christians that maybe you've already met. Is there something about just different about the way they live? Is there this holiness about them that's maybe perhaps both attractive or arresting at the same time? Perhaps a way of living that even makes you squirm and maybe sometimes you kind of want to chalk it up in the back of your mind like, oh, he's just kind of being holier than that. Well, I would say if you haven't met any Christians like that, maybe you haven't met any Christians. Because Christians are those who markedly live under the authority of God. They submit themselves, surrender themselves to the way of God and the way that he would have them live. They don't do this because they want to make themselves acceptable to God. They do this because Jesus is their Lord. They know that God always wants the, what's best for his people. And so he know, they, the Christians know that fences and laws that God establishes are not meant for destruction but delight, not judgment but joy. Yes, Christians don't follow God's law perfectly. I admit it. I don't. I preach a better message than I live. But for Christians, it's not about perfection. It's about direction. A Godward orientation. Christianity will never be, thank you for saving me now. I'm going to live any way I want to live. But God, thank you, and tell me how I can honor and praise you. So beloved, Redeemer Bible Fellowship, Christians, you have a copy of God's law. You have a copy of God's law not only on your bookshelf, in your hands, in the Bible, but you have God's law written on your hearts. That is the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one, that there will come a day when God will put the law within them and write it on their hearts. And and God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. You as Christians of the new covenant have the law written on your hearts. And God would make his fame known not just by your proclamation, but also by your sanctification. Holiness and righteousness must prevail in the church that his name might be made known. This is why we work on our marriages Because it displays, it speaks, and it proclaims to others Christ's love for the church. That forgiveness and fidelity is real. It's not imaginary. This is why, as a local church, we practice church discipline. It guards the name and glory of Christ. Fundamentally, church discipline is about the reputation of Jesus. And whether or not the church can continue to affirm someone who claims the name of Christ when their life egregiously mischaracterizes and mars the name of Christ. This is why we magnify God with our money. We live lives of simplicity rather than accumulation. We would even sell what we have in order for others to know the gospel. Why would we do such silly things? Why would we become missionaries? because we are satisfied in Christ alone, and Christ is the pearl of great price. Church, it is absolutely imperative that we do not tire in keeping God's word, that we remain without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, and thus shine as lights in the world. So, God's, God does indeed have a passion for his own glory, for the fame of his own name, As a church, let us glorify him with our lips and with our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we once again come to your word and are thankful for its clarity and its call upon our lives. And even now as we contemplate the words that we speak and the way that we live, we ask for the Spirit's enablement that we might live lives that display your glory. May we share the good news of Christ, trusting in the Spirit that gives us the words to speak. And may we live lives with the strength that the Spirit supplies. To your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Standing for the benediction. The benediction comes from Luke 2, verses 29 through 32. Depart in peace according to God's word, for your eyes have seen the salvation that he has prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to his people Israel. And all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated for a short time of silent reflection, prayer, Please join us afterwards outside in the courtyard and in the fellowship hall.